This is the inaugural episode of The Spider and the Fly, a mile-high true crime podcast. First of all, whatever's out there, we only want good energy here in this room. Let me just go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Ben. I'm going to be one of your hosts. I'm Tiffany. We're here together. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to smoke, and we're going to drink, and we're going to talk about some true crime. And we are going to go ahead and get this podcast started. Cheers. Cheers. Tiffany, do you know who Spider-Man is? I know who the Marvel Spider-Man is. Okay. He is a photographer in real life. Mm-hmm. What is Spider-Man's name? His, his uh, secret identity, Peter... Peter Parker. And he puts on a nice little suit at mm-hmm. night and he protects us. What if I told you that everything we know about Spider-Man is absolutely wrong? What if instead I told you that the real-life Spider-Man was actually not a web-slinging hero at all? The Denver Spider-Man is one neighborhood wall crawler you did not want dropping in on you. This is an old story from the north side of Denver. Growing up, it was always a creepy story and actually an urban legend that you would hear uh, around Halloween or in the fall. The Denver Spider-Man is a tale of trickery, deception, and mile-high murder. Theodore Edward Conies was a tall, gaunt, and lanky man who eked a living through the Great Depression. His sunken face bore the tone of a desperate man, desperate enough to kill. But first, let me set the tone. The year was 1941, and the U.S. is hot off the heels of the Dust Bowl, which devastated the country. It was a legitimate crisis that forced homesteads to be abandoned, leaving more than 500,000 Americans homeless and jobless. Looking for work, many folks headed west. As a result, it was not uncommon to see drifters making their way through Colorado and its neighboring states looking for work. It was also not terribly uncommon to see drifters asking for a handout, a Denver tradition which continues to this day. This is where his story begins. For most of his life, Theodore Edward Conies was a sickly man who struggled with health issues since he was a child and well into adulthood. In fact, doctors told his family that he wouldn't likely live past 18 years old. He bounced back between working several different odd jobs and being homeless for most of his life. He was often ridiculed for his inability to work due to his frailty and expressed later that he wanted to find a place where he could be free of the judgment of others. Theodore Edward Conies would soon find his hiding place one fine September day. Conies decided to pay his old friend a visit. That old friend was Philip Peters, not Peter Parker. (laughs) A 73-year-old retired Rio Grande Western Railroad auditor. At some point while wandering between odd jobs, Coney assumed that Phillips was well off enough to help Coney with a handout. Not a hand job, but a handout. (laughs) It's unclear what Coney's was actually looking for from Peters. Some say he wanted money. Others say he wanted food. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it does kind of have a little bit of funk to it, huh? Yeah. Weird background taste, right? Mm. Doesn't taste as bad as it did before. <laughs> Whew. Some speculate that he was just looking to get out of the cold. Colorado winters can easily drop well below zero. And as a homeless, jobless drifter, the man was hungry, desperate, and willing to do anything. When he walked up to the house, the door was unlocked. So apparently these guys didn't, uh, didn't lock their doors, so he let himself in. During his uninvited snooping, he had happened upon an old pistol, and while rummaging around the house, he found a crawl space tucked inside the ceiling of a closet. He investigated the nook to find what would become his home for the next nine months. It's creepy that somebody could be living in your fucking attic and you wouldn't even know. Right. But let's talk about this crawl space. Yeah. So he's like, he's like real tall and real lanky, but he's kind of like a lawn chair. He kind of like folds himself in half when he's in there. But the police described it as being the size of, uh, three times the size of a cigar box. So if you think about it, like a cigar box is like yeah, barely enough that space to, cre- like to creep in there. Three times as big as a cigar box? Right. Jesus. Peters, who was napping one evening, heard shuffling sounds coming from his kitchen and investigated to find Theodore Edward Coney's thin, gaunt, and ghoulish raiding his icebox one evening. Nobody knows what words were exchanged, but during the confrontation, the two began to struggle, as Peters did not recognize the man that stood before him. Philip Peters 
being a feeble old man, defended himself the best he could with his cane, but Coney's overpowered him. Coney's, who still had Peter's pistol, proceeded to beat the man with his own pistol until it shattered in his hand, leaving fragments of the firearm to be found at the crime scene later as evidence. Coney's found a stove shaker handle from the stove and struck Peter's 37 times until he had bludgeoned the man to death. Police would describe the murder scene as being without mercy. Coney's had struck Peter's with such force that the walls and ceilings of the house were spattered with Peter's blood. The murder was so messy that the blood from the murdered man was tracked into several other rooms of the house. Despite this, police noticed that a murder weapon had been rinsed in the sink. The police stated, The killer took time to wash his hands and wipe off the murder instrument, so he could have taken time for a robbery. Assuming that this had in fact been a robbery, thank you, the police investigated to find that none of the valuables in the house had been taken. In fact, being survivors of the Great Depression, police would find many secret stashes of Philip Peter's cash that no doubt would have been stolen in a robbery situation. Police also briefly investigated the crawlspace door, but after thumping on it multiple times and unable to open the door, the police moved on with their investigation. He was living in the attic for about nine months. Okay. So that's still... But still, it's <laughs> enough time to make a fucking human being. Right. Uh, it was... Up there for almost a year. Crept in like a bandit in the night. Yeah, why nobody, they were... Nobody had a clue he was there. The cops didn't even know he had a clue. Yeah. And literally inches from this guy. And... Didn't even know. No clue. He's wandering around the house. People don't even know. He's creeping. He's like... He got bold in somebody's house while they're there with them. That right. fucking scares me. <laughs> now... <laughs> When police found fragments of that pistol at the crime scene, uh, I don't know if the gun was loaded at all. I think he went into the house, he found the pistol, broken at the crime pieces. scene, and why wouldn't he just shoot him? Right. You see all these little bits and pieces of a crime scene that the police would eventually put together the puzzle. Yeah. With very little evidence, the police would return to the house several times after neighbors noticed shadows creeping in the empty locked house and a gray, ghostly face peering out the windows. Police would respond to calls from frantic neighbors, only to find the house empty. The neighborhood began to believe the house to be haunted, and local papers started referring to the death of Philip Peters as a ghost slaying, and referring to the house as the ghost house of Moncrief Place. And I'm sorry, when is this, when is this taking place? The year is 1940. Okay, a lot of things are up for interpretation at this time. Right. <laughs> they did find fingerprints at the crime scene, but that's as far as their investigation got. Pretty much all they had to work off of was the murder weapon that was left at the scene of the crime, mm. parts of the pistol that Coney's used, and aside from that, uh, they didn't really have anything to go off of. But this whole time, Philip Peters' wife, Helen Peters, was checked in at St. Anthony's Hospital with a broken hip. With her husband dead and recovering from her surgery, she moves back into her home where her and her late husband had spent 50 years together. One night, she sees a dark figure skulking around the shadows, and it startles her, forcing her to fall and fracture her recovering hip. Refusing to return to the hospital, Helen remains bedridden in her home with the assistance of two nurses. After yet another police investigation returned fruitless, Helen would be haunted by the vision of a spook on the back stairs that chattered its teeth at her. Her words, not mine. <laughs> Helen Peters and her nurses would hear rattling and shuffling sounds in the walls. One of the women was convinced that she saw a ghost at the bottom of the stairs. She claimed to see a filthy, wraith-like thing that vanished when she screamed. Helen Peters, after suffering two broken hips, or at least the same hip, broken twice, <laughs> and the unsolved murder of her husband, paired with the horror of living in the ghost house of Moncrief Place, decides to move to Grand Junction, Colorado with her son, where she would live the rest of her days. Helen Peters. She's the real victim of the story. She was already suffering. Yeah. Like the whole human aspect of this type of story and the fact that Theodore Edward Coney's did heinous things. The people that it happened to had to live with it, you know, so imagine she's in the hospital and she's already like, what the fuck? Yeah. Feels helpless, bedridden. Once she's on the mend and she moves back into the house, he's like creeping around. It says... That he was chattering his teeth at her. Yeah, but that is, why would you terrorize her uh, like that? You know, she got bad hips, so that means no. she can't move around good. Meanwhile, police were stationed outside the ghost house as part of an ongoing investigation. And that's actually how they caught him. Yeah. So they caught him when he was looking out the window at the postman. He'd watch the mm -hmm. postman come by, 
And that's when police station outside the house found him. Yeah. And on one balmy afternoon, they would finally have the chance of busting this ghost. They rushed into action, blowing the whistles for support and bursting into the house, knocking the door off the hinges. As the two policemen entered the house, the pungent stench of an animal-like odor filled their nostrils. Like, as soon as they entered, the whole house smelled like... I know you know what that's like. Yes! (laughs) The whole house smelled like the inside of an asshole. (laughs) Gross. The men scrambled through the house, following the beastly odor up the stairs and into the bedroom, where the men saw the crawlspace door swing shut across the room. A little bit of dramatic effect for you. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) A spook. (laughs) When the police opened the crawl space door, they were greeted by two filthy, dirty black feet kicking aggressively at them. One of the officers grabbed the ragged pant leg only to have it rip in his grasp. On the second attempt, he was able to grab the kicking leg with both hands and wrench the ankle with enough force to unleash a banshee-like scream from Coney's <laughs> as he fainted. It took both police officers to remove the filthy, gangly body of Theodore Edward Coney's, and when he recovered, he was taken to the police station, where the starving man told the police what had happened. The police record states that he was given a hamburger, apple pie, and a cup of coffee, likely the first decent meal that he had had in a long time. The level of disgust from the police after investigating Theodore Edward Coney's cramped crawlspace cannot be overstated, and the police could not believe that a human could live in such a cramped space for so long, though it was Coney's appearance that made an indelible impression on the police. Yeah, sorry about that pale face. Detective Captain James Childers described Theodore Edward Coney's as the strangest looking human I had ever seen. He was a tall man, just under six feet, but thin as a wilted weed. His dirty hair hung low over his ears, and his skin was the ugly, unwashed gray of an overcast sky. Jesus. Multiple accounts make a point of how gangly and gray Coney's was when they finally arrested him. One officer stated that Coney's was beetle-browed, wide-eyed, and pale as a ghost. He hated sunlight and was the color of a mushroom or a spider that scurries for darkness when discovered hiding under a stone. Another comment stated that Coney's recoiled from daylight as though struck by a physical blow. These descriptions from the police would make the papers and solidify Theodore Edward Coney's reputation as the ghoulish killer who lived in a crawl space like a spider. Following his arrest, the trial was postponed due to him catching pneumonia. Being sickly and malnourished most of his struggled life, he clearly had trauma. Even though Coney's best hope was to avoid the death penalty, Coney's would endure two separate psychiatric evaluations, both of which proving him to be sound enough of mind to stand trial. That being said, the trial itself lasted all of six days, and Coney's, despite being charged with a gruesome murder, remained composed while in the courtroom. Coney's describes the situation in his own words. Everything would have been all right, and Phil Peters would have been alive today if he hadn't caught me robbing the icebox. It was him or me. I thought he had gone out, but he was taking a nap. I hit him with the stove shaker when he tried to run for help. I don't know if he recognized me. It was nearly 30 years since he'd seen me last. When it was over, I ran to the attic after I washed and dried the shaker. I was sitting on the trap door when you were pounding on it from below that night you found him. I was in the neighborhood on September in 1941 and found the house unlocked and no one home. I went in and stole some food. I was in bad shape. My lungs were giving me a lot of trouble and I was at the end of my rope. Fall was coming and I couldn't face another winter on the road. I had to have a place to stay. I didn't know Miss Peters was in the hospital. I found the hole in the closet, climbed through and slept and slept. Yeah, winter in Colorado is brutal. You, got, you can't sleep outside in the winter. You got to have somewhere to be. You know, you need to work and get you a place to stay. Yeah, you don't, need, a, you don't home. need to sneak into somebody's house and kill them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not the same as couch surfing at all. Yeah, not at all. Whenever I heard him downstairs, I kept real still. Then I got bolder and used to shadow him from room to room. It was sort of a game. It gave me a thrill. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever had anyone at my mercy. Mm. But I didn't want to hurt him. It was miserable hot in the summer and my feet froze in the dead of winter in the attic. But it was all part of the price I was willing to pay. I can't tell you why I stuck it out. I guess it was mostly because it was a world all my own. I used to go down and look out the windows and saw the postman come by. 
Nobody's written me in 25 years. Whenever I saw people on the street, I hated them, and I would go back to my attic. Pretty creepy, huh? Yes. Yeah, Somebody just living in your attic and you have no fucking idea. And he's no coming, clue. He's coming downstairs when you leave and shit. And people are like, we are seeing a face in the window. And it's mm-hmm. really his fucking face. And that's just the thing, too. Like, the cops were being called by neighbors all the time. Yeah. And it kind of, it's kind of why it has its reputation. Because the cops would show up. They wouldn't see anything. They checked the house. Yeah. All the doors were locked. Yeah. So they were like, this... These people are crazy. There's there's no way. After that, though, you start to believe in ghost stories. Like, I know what I've seen. He continues. It's been a nightmare. Nearly ten months of hellish, terrible nightmare. And now that it's all coming into the open, I feel relief. You can't live like a creature, damned without thinking thoughts that burn deep in your soul. You see, I'd never committed a crime before. Not even a petty one. Yes, justice will come to me. As it should. On Halloween, 1942, the jury unanimously voted Coney's to be guilty. And while the judge allowed for him to avoid the death penalty, he would spend the rest of his life behind bars at the Colorado State Penitentiary. Coney's was recorded telling his lawyer, Now I feel safe. I'll have a better home than I've had in years. On May 16, 1967, aged 84 years old, Theodore Edward Coney's died in a prison hospital. His body is buried in an unmarked grave at Mountain Vale Cemetery. We actually got his plot number right here. If you're ever in the area in Canyon City, Colorado, swing by grave 71C4, and you'll be standing on the resting spot of the Denver Spider-Man. Wow. Mm -hmm. Probably would never be there, but good to know. It was actually years that went by before people would stop referring to the death of Philip Peters as the Ghost Man Murders. Following the trial, newspapers would report Coney's tiny, secret crawl space where he would creep down and prey on the poor Peters household. Do you think that Theodore Edward Coney's the Spider-Man of Denver, do you think that he was more of a coward than a killer? Mm, Yes. I don't know if I would say coward. Desperate. Uh, maybe a little cowardly because you could have just took what was coming to you for sneaking and living in somebody's house. Right. The only reason why you killed this person is because they caught you in the icebox. Right. In his fucking icebox. Like, how dare you? I think it was like uh, overkill. That's when you, like, the word cowardly comes into play because you could have just hit him enough to get him down, not to kill him, but maybe to knock him out and then to get the fuck out of there. And go find somewhere else to live. It's fucked up on both ends. This man is homeless and doesn't want to be outside in the wintertime in Denver. Meanwhile, you're in someone's attic. And he came down to his kitchen and caught you in his icebox. (laughs) And you killed him. Like, it's crazy. The Denver Spider-Man would become a bit of a local legend, whispered throughout the neighborhood, and gained traction as an urban legend, dancing back and forth between truth and fiction. The story would be passed down to the children as a tale to chill the bones particularly near Halloween, when a haunted breeze would blow. It's perfect that they they found him guilty on Halloween. I grew up hearing about the Spider-Man as a little boy. I'd always thought that it was just some made-up horror. However, what I thought was a fabrication, a tall tale turned out to be a gruesome true story of murder. Whoa, oh, 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 oh. And that's the story of the Denver Spider-Man. That is fucking creepy. Good job, Ben. All right, my story tonight is on Bruce Dotson, the murder of Bruce Dotson. Really, we'll be getting into his wife, Janice Dotson. So, we'll start off with the murder. On October 15, 1995, in Mesa County, Colorado, uh, newlyweds Bruce and Janice Dotson were on Bruce's first and last uh, hunting-slash-camping trip. In um, Umprage National Forest. I know I'm saying that wrong. So why they were there, and I, I heard it several times while I was doing the research for it, is that they were camping near other people. You know, I'm not a camper, so I don't know. But I guess it's weird if you are camping close to somebody else that you don't know. Sure. And I guess I can understand why that's weird. Because you don't know who could be over there. Exactly. And and it's hunting as well. So while they're there, um, there's also a veteran police officer. His name is Doug Kyle. He was also 
doing his own camping and hunting trip with a friend that he was there with. Earlier in the day, that same day on October 15th, he met uh, Janice. And they, you know, just talked really briefly, met each other, and they went their separate ways. Okay. Later on in the day, Officer Kyle hears a female yelling for help. Naturally, because he is a cop, he runs towards the yells for help. He comes across Janice again, mm-hmm. and in his words, the way he explained it is that, you know, as soon as she's seen him, she dramatically dropped to the ground. Sure. So he runs up to her, and he's like, well, what's going on? What's the problem? She's pointing further down the trail saying, uh, my husband is hurt. Um, you have to help him. He's hurt. Actually, she didn't say my husband. She just said, um, you have to help him. He's hurt. You have to help him. So he goes down the trail further, and he comes across mm-hmm. um, Bruce Dotson, who was laying face down on the ground with a rifle next to him and three shotgun shells also. This is the first things that he sees. He's observing everything around him. He comes to the conclusion that he's dead. Mm-hmm. But he's also taken into all the stuff, the scene of the crime, everything that's around him. Gotcha. By this point, Janice has made it back to where... His body is at where Officer Kyle is at. She's still saying he's hurt. He needs help. Once again, Officer Kyle has already came to the conclusion that he's beyond help. He's dead. I skipped that he visually noticed that there's a gunshot wound in his back because he's laying face down. Right. He notices that first, obviously. <laughs> but, that first. So he, he notices this, and it, is it going to become kind of like a, a key thing later on in the story? Yes. So the the shotgun, the shell casings, and the bullet in the back is what he notices first of saying he's dead. And she keeps talking about he needs help. So we'll get back to the investigation. Sure. We're going to get a little bit into Bruce Dotson as a person. Mm-hmm. Everybody, all his friends, describe him as very calm and mal-mannered. He is originally from Baltimore. He served in the Vietnam. He was in the Navy for four years, but gotcha. around the time of the Vietnam War. Um, so after that was over, he moved to Colorado, but he became a lab tech. So you can't confirm or deny that he wasn't running U.S. <laughs> I cannot confirm, nor can I deny that he was not testing UAs. <laughs> he met Janice while working in a hospital together. And I'll get into a little bit of her background while I bring her up. Uh, her maiden name is Sanders. Uh-huh. She's from Houston, Texas. Hmm. Um, her whole family are outdoorsy people. They like to camp. They like to hunt. Gotcha. So because of that, she is a avid hunter at the age of eight. She's very good at hunting, so she knows what she's doing. Sure. She knows how to handle a gun, Sure, which is important to mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. All of her friends describe her home life as not being too good. It's very dramatic and chaotic or whatever. They don't describe exactly what was going on in the home life right. from everything that I read, but it wasn't a good home life. So she moves to Colorado from Houston. When she moves here... She meets and marries uh, J.C. Lee. They have two kids. While she is still with him, she goes back to school to become a nurse in 1982. After that, her husband, J.C. Lee, he has an affair, and he leaves her for a much younger woman. So they end up divorcing in 1990. After they divorce, she recreates herself, reinvents herself, um... Her friend that she worked with at the hospital described her as dressing like a Mormon. I don't know what that means as in a woman's sense, but I would say pretty plain if I had to guess. Pretty plain style. Yes, very plain Jane. So um, she describes her as reinventing herself and dressing flashy and wearing sequin dresses. That's of the times. You gotcha. know, 1990s sequence was definitely in. Sure. Big hair and big makeup and things like that. Sure. So she reinvents herself and she becomes that type of woman. She ends up working at another hospital, which is where Bruce works, and they meet each other. They start dating. They start dating in 92, and they were together that whole time before they got married in 95. Mm-hmm. Three months after they are married, Bruce is dead. So how how long did they actually know each other before they got married? 
Three years. Three years. There's from 92 to 94. Um, everybody said that he was head over heels in love with her. He would do anything for her. Interesting. And he had never been married before. That's a big move for him to get married. As far as the research that I could find on him anyway. But in any other case, they describe him as being an all-around cool dude, you know, mm-hmm. who didn't have, like, a wife or kids or anything until he got with her. Sure. And then three months after that, he's dead. So we'll get into the investigation of it all. So we're, we're going to go back to the scene of the crime. The scene of the crime is the National Park. Right. So... At this point in the investigation, the police have... Well, Officer Kyle has come to the conclusion that Bruce is dead. So, he is the one who calls the police, makes a 911 call, we need cops up here. After getting this call, because they don't know the cause of death at this moment, they don't know if it's a true accident, which happened, you know, hunting accidents happen, like Janice is saying, or if it was a murder. They have the CBI, which is the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, uh, Mesa County Sheriff's Department, and I assume regular police department for the county. I didn't see anything, but I would assume that it was National Park Police probably. Right. Because they just say regular police. But for sure, Mesa County Sheriff's Department and the CBI was there to investigate whether this is a accident or a murder. Sure. When Officer... Kyle, because he's the one who made the 911 call, he's the one who assessed that he's dead, Um, he's led back to the body by one of the Mesa County deputies, and he notices that the body is not the same as it was when he first encountered it. He has been turned over on his back, so he was, when he found him, he was laying face down on the ground, clearly where you can see he's been shot in the back. Mm -hmm. And so when he gets back over there with the deputies, he's like, well, what is this? You know, he's on his back and his body has been covered up. Janice is saying that she is covering him up to keep him warm. I have that in parentheses, to keep him warm until the police come. So she like flipped the body over, basically. Basically, and covered him up. (laughs) So riddle me this. Why would you need to keep a dead body warm for really any reason? But what's even more weird about that is she is a registered nurse. So clearly you know the difference between a dead person and somebody who needs help, right? Sure. You're not going to be turning a body over, even not in law enforcement, but even as a, as a, a registered nurse, you know that at this point this person is dead and police need to assess the situation. So you shouldn't be turning over the body and covering him up and all of that because you are disturbing this crime scene at the moment. Mm-hmm. If it's an accident or whatever, that needs to be determined, but you are, you're contaminating the evidence. Sure. You know? So what year was this all taking place? 95. 1995. Yes. So while there's not a lot of crime scene forensic, there's still enough Knowledge to know that you don't touch the body, you know, you don't mm-hmm. turn it back over, he's dead. Like, if they're trying to determine if this is an accident or a true homicide. And this whole time, she doesn't know that he is, in fact, uh, a cop. At this point, she does know. She does. Because he comes back with the deputies, and he, you know, they're talking to him because he's the one who made the phone call. Sure. He's the one who determined that he's actually dead. And in the time that he left to get the deputies, she manipulated the body, flipped him around, and did all this this other other stuff. Yes. Cool. So they're like, okay, she's touching the body. She's flipped him over and everything. Get her out of here. <laughs> take her back to her camp. Like, you know, so they have the deputies take her back so that they can process the scene without her being there or process what's left of the scene anyway. So she's, you know, obviously has manipulated at this point. The investigators, when they come back to the scene, and they're starting from fresh from however it is now, um, they observe a bolt-action rifle, which is a big hunting rifle. Um, They observe that next to his body. So that's still there. The rifle is still there. There's a hunting vest and cap, so both of these are orange in color, so that you can see, you can tell the difference between a human person wearing this vest and an animal. Because the shells was found right there, 
you know, they assumed that this is where the shots were fired. With that question, it has, you have to ask yourself and wonder, the gun is right here, the shells are right here, did he shoot himself? Well, we know that's not possible because he was shot in the back. And this is a long rifle. This so. is a rifle, so there's no way you can shoot. First of all, there's no way you can shoot yourself in the back. Second of all, you definitely can't do it with a rifle. <laughs> so quickly, that's rolled out. This is not suicide. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it begs a question when you're investigating something, you know? Sure. You have to ask those type of questions. But they rule that out. When they observe the vest closer, they notice that there's three bullet holes in the front of it. No way is this an accident if there's three bullet holes, mm-hmm. right? Even if you were trying to kill something, after the first shot, you're looking to see if you got it. I can only assume anyway because I'm not a hunter. Sure. But I would think that after your first shot, you would know it, it wasn't a animal. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so cops get there. Mm-hmm. Dead body on the ground. Mm-hmm. The guy who called the cops in says the body's been it's been moved. Yes. It's been flipped around. It's been flipped over, yes. And uh, so what happens next? They, they observe this. The shell casings, they rule out the suicide, um, and the rifle is next one, and they're looking at the vest at this point. There's three bullet holes in the front of it. Like I said, no way is this an accident if there's three bullet holes. You know, like, you accidentally shoot somebody once. You don't accidentally shoot them three times. Also, while investigating this scene, there is a fence that's part of where he was, his body is found. A fence line. While they're processing the whole scene, they're walking up and down this fence line, and they notice that there's a bullet hole in one of the poles. Ah. After measuring the pole, they are looking at where the hole is at in the pole, it perfectly to where the body is found, meaning that the shot came from like behind. You know what I'm saying? So whoever was firing that gun was shooting through the post. At the potential victim. Yeah. The shots that hit him went through the post. Mm -hmm. So if it's like somebody shooting from over there and they hit me, it's going to hit me lodged in the wall back here. Right. So it's going to be like the post. Oh, I see. So it's behind him. Yes. I see. So the the bullet went through him and hit the post. Gotcha. Right. They measure it. The hole is right where the body's at. You know, so they go beyond that. They take like a, a rope. And they stick it in through the hole, and they pull it, like, past where the body is to keep going, trying to get where it came from. Uh-huh. They get to, like, this little knoll of grass where they determine that this is where the shooter was actually at. And they find casings that don't belong to the rifle that's next to them. These are the casings to a completely different shots that were fired? Completely different gun. They match it eventually to the bullets that was found in him. So this rifle that he has is had to be the rifle that he had. You know, like, it was his rifle. He was shot with a completely different gun with completely different uh, shell casings. Right. Hmm. They measure that and find, like, where the shooter was at just based on this hole in the pole. You know, they just see where the shot came from, you know? And then they, that's where they find the shell casings, and they determine right. that this is where the shooter was at. Now that's all that's left at this point is to talk to Janice because this is some weird fucking shit. (laughs) You know, we don't have anything else but to talk to her. So they start talking to her about what happened that morning Mm -hmm. before everything. Mm -hmm. So she explains that they have been there. I guess this is like their second or third day camping. Right. And she explains that because she's more of an avid hunter and this is his first time, She's going to go up on a hill, and she's going to, you know, scare the game to come towards him. So he'll, it'll be easier for him to shoot them because they're coming his way. Right. Because he's new to it. He never did it before. Right. Which I still find everything kind of weird. Uh, in the Navy, they don't shoot guns. Like, you don't train like you I would mean, anyway. I, I'm not really sure from what I understand about people who've been in the Navy. From I've heard secondhand. They spend a lot of time on boats. Yeah. You know what I mean? That seems to be like a lot of dudes cramped on one boat. A lot of like mopping floors. And I hear if uh, you fuck up, they make you uh, peel potatoes. Yeah. It's like the big thing. <laughs> Not to say that he didn't know how to shoot. I just think that it's uh, it's kind of weird that he never hunted before, I guess. I mean, I've don't, I don't really think I've ever hunted before. But you also wasn't in the Navy. Nah. 
Well, I mean, just because he served in the military doesn't make him like you're right. A, a, a hunter or like a gun enthusiast or you're right. A survivalist. That is absolutely right. You know, it might not be his bag. If from what it sounds like to me, it sounds like it was her idea. Absolutely her idea. Uh-huh. Everybody's like, why are you taking him? He's never been hunting. She's in her element. You know, she's a, a, a Marx, Marx woman. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, back to the questioning. Sure. <laughs> That's what she was saying. She's going to, you know, have the game come his way so it'd be easy for him to shoot since mm-hmm. he's never hunted before. Sure. And they're going to meet back at their camp at 930. Mm-hmm. But something happens where she gets mud all over her clothes and her shoes where she goes back to the camp earlier than 930 to change her clothes. On her way back, she comes across some man wearing camouflage and um, she didn't see him like the whole time they were camping and she didn't see him after. But he's some random man walking around with a rifle wearing camouflage. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the police are having to hunt down this suspicious man. <laughs> now, they got to talk to everybody who was at the campsite because now some guy that you never seen before or after you ran into while you're going back to change your clothes. So, she just happened to like walk past him or... Yeah, she, she he, well, he walked past her. She or, had no idea that he was in the area at all. Yeah. So, she overlooked the fact that there might have been anyone else in the area. Right. So she tells them that. So like I said, now they got to talk to all of the people who are at the same campsite. Which brings me back to my point of it being weird that she set up camp next to somebody so close. You know, like they were saying that everybody's branched out. Why would you set up camp so close? This is weird. She's the one that said that she ran into somebody, right? Yeah. Why would she out herself like that? Why would she even mention it? Exactly. Why wouldn't that be the first thing out of your mouth? So at this point, they don't know still if this is an accident or a homicide. But if I'm thinking about like my husband randomly being shot and there's some random man walking around that I didn't see before or after, that might have been the first thing that I talked about. Now, to her defense, this is the first time the cops are actually talking to her, you know, after processing this scene. So Mm -hmm. that might be why she hadn't brought it up yet. But that's just a small part of her defense. So she didn't she didn't mention any of this to this officer Kyle. No, that's my point. That's but, my point. But, but she, like I said, they they really hadn't questioned her up until this point though. So now they're now the cops though they need to talk to Officer Kyle because as far as they know, you know he could be this suspicious man walking around. Mm-hmm. Now we need a statement from you. Sure. And then we need to talk to your friend who you're with. So right. they. Talk to them. They have alibis about what they were doing. They weren't even at that campsite. Like, when he heard her yelling, they had just got back from hunting. So, he's, like, unloading his shit when he hears her yelling. So, that's his alibi. You know, they, they him and his friend, they alibied each other. And so, the police ruled them out, basically. Like, you know, we know you weren't even here. You heard her when she came back. When you came back is when you heard her. Basically, there's like this amount of time we're out in this forest and nobody knows what they were doing, you know, (laughs) because everybody's doing their own shit. They ruled them out. Now it's time for the autopsy. So the next day, it's a Dr. Thomas Canfield, which happens to be one of Bruce's friends. They work at the same hospital together. So they're good friends. They've at least worked with each other for a while. And he's like tasked with doing this man's autopsy. Oh, man. That's his buddy. Yeah. So he's like, you know, they were like, well, everybody's devastated, but you know, hunting accidents happen all the time. Fairly quickly, he determines that his death is not a accident because of the bullets. There's three bullet holes in him. He's right. a one. How are you going to shoot yourself three times in the back with a rifle? <laughs> right. And then you shot in the front as well. There was damage to the body, like the bullet that hit him is made for hunting. So it. It kills you, you know, it's made to kill whatever it shoots. Right. And that's what he was shot with. So, like, the damage to the body is like, okay. And then he's hit, like, three times. One of the the holes, there's three bullet holes. One of the holes went through the vest, but it didn't penetrate his body. Gotcha. Lucked out on that one. Right. Right there, that shows you that that's not an accident. Because if you, you shot somebody, oh, my God, like, that's a person. You know, you shot him in the vest, Mm -hmm. and then you proceeded to shoot him two more times. 
Like, okay, so that's not an accident, you know? This man is sitting here wearing his vest, wearing his hat, doesn't look like any kind of animal. You know, he's a human being. There's just, I can't rationalize how you, how that is an accident if you hit him three times. Not to mention he's wearing a bright orange vest and hat. So because of the bullet holes, like I said, the one in the vest, it didn't penetrate him, but the other two did. Gotcha. And that's how the doctor is like, he got on the phone, called the police, like, this is not an accident, it's a homicide. Back at the scene, uh, they have determined what kind of shell cases that they found, like the rifle that killed him from the shell cases that they found from where the shooter was at. Right. They determined what kind of rifle it is. Um, I don't know about guns or anything, but they said it's a uh, .308 shell casing. I don't know what kind of rifle. That's what the the doctor was saying, Mm -hmm. that the bullet that hit him is meant to kill. You know, whatever it's shooting is meant to kill. Right. They figure out what kind of rifle it is, and then they question Janice again because they haven't produced this guy that she said that she's seen. <laughs> right. Plus, after the autopsy, yeah, it, it, it raises a lot of questions. A whole lot of questions because now we know for sure that it's a homicide uh-huh. and not an accident. So, of course, she's questioned again. Uh, during the question, it comes out that. Her ex-husband, J.C. Lee, was also at the same campsite that same weekend. And she knew about this, obviously, because it's coming out in the interview or the questioning or interrogation or whatever. Uh, So she knows that he's in this same area, but he left the day before um, he got killed, before Bruce killed. He he left the day before. Right, right. Now, like, the police need to talk to him since he was near the site. Even though he left the day before, he's still near the site at the same time. You know, that's, that's not a coincidence. You are, here you have this woman's husband who just got killed. And meanwhile, her ex-husband is at the same campsite the same weekend. He just left the day before he got killed. Quite the coincidence. Quite the coincidence. All right, so now they got to question JC, Right. They go to question him. He's corroborating. He's telling them everything. He lets them come and question him. He has no problems and no issues. He's being upfront and truthful about everything. While they're questioning him at his house, they see this list of stuff. And, like, amongst the stuff on the list is, like, a rifle. The same kind of rifle that killed Bruce. Right? So they're like, well, what the fuck is this list that you have here? Mm -hmm. He's like, these are things that were stolen from me. While I was at the campsite. What? And they don't say what else is on there, but, you know, obviously the fucking gun sticks out. Sure. So they are like, okay, well, we need to talk more about this. Like, did you report this gun missing? Like, what else is going on? You know? Uh-huh. And he's like, I don't know. Like, this is all the shit that was missing from me while I was at this at this campsite. And he gives them his fingerprints, his DNA. Because he don't have nothing to hide. He's sure. cooperating with them. Sure. He's like, I did report the gun stolen when I got back. Blah, blah, blah. While they're still talking to him. Right. They're asking questions like, did you know that Janice was there with her husband um, at the same time? He's like, no, I didn't know. But I go and I camp in this location all the time. This you is know? her ex-husband? Yeah. JC. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he's like, no, I didn't know she was there. But this is where I go. You know, like, when me and her was together, we would go and we would camp at this location. So, they asked him, well, do you think that she is capable of murder? And he's like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know. That's a soft yes. (laughs) Exactly. He's like, I don't know. And they're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, we got to interview her again. Now we got to go back and talk to Janice again. <laughs> so this is the third time that the police have had to go back and talk to this woman to yeah. straighten the story out. Right. So once again, we come back to her being this avid hunter and camper, you know. So obviously she picked this location, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so he's like, I'm always here. You know, like me and her, when we were together, I would come here, I would camp, we would hunt. And this is where I always come. Like, she knows this is where I be. I think I'm starting to see where you're going with this. Yeah. Now we got to question Janice again. So this part of it I labeled as motive and coincidence. 
up until this point, there's still no motive for her doing it, mm-hmm. right? They're at a loss until they figure out that there's a policy worth $450,000 insurance policy. Then they also find out that right after they got married, so they've been together since 92. They get married in 95. They've mm-hmm. only been married for three months when he dies, right? Right. As soon as they got married, she is making sure that her name is on everything that he owns. Every property that he owns, every bank account, everything. Everything that is his, her name is on. She right. made sure that. And she also changed his will so that if anything happened to him, she's getting all the shit. Is he aware of this? He has to be. He has to be, yeah. he has to be aware. I mean, aware. the cops are like... <laughs> What the fuck? These are big red flags. You know what I'm saying? Right. But he's one participant. He's never been married before. In that aspect, like, it's kind of weird, but he's never been married before. But so you got to think, well, if something does happen, now you're my wife. $450,000 in insurance money. She changed all his wills. She put her name on everything that was owned by him. So she didn't change it to just her name. She just added her name to it. So that if something happens to him, it's going on to her. Right. Police are like, all right, you need to come in and do this polygraph. And they just flat out ask her, like, during the polygraph, did you kill him? Of course. You know? And, right. of course, she showed deception, and she didn't pass the polygraph. She and Then she tells them, they ask her, like, you know, did you kill him? And she's like, well, why would I kill him? I have no reason. And they're like, well, you're getting all this money. You know, $450,000 in insurance is a lot of fucking money. Sure. So she says... Well, I don't need any money. I grew up from a wealthy family, well off, I'm good, I don't need his money. All of her friends, everybody that she has told about her traumatic lifestyle and her childhood when she moved from Houston to Denver, it also was them being very poor. As an adult, she is still struggling too. So what do you mean you came from a well-off family and you had all this money like... Where is it at? So, like, people who know you know that you are full of shit. Like, you... Hydra, please. Oh, you... You, <laughs> you was broke. And you struggled as an adult. So, where is this money? So, she's just trying to play it off like she doesn't, she doesn't need it. Yeah. They don't have any hard evidence on her, so they have to let her go. She... They have a lot of circumstantial evidence. Everybody knows for years, you know, or... Yeah, for years. They know that it's her... They can't convict her or anything because they don't have any evidence. Right. So a year later, she gets married again to a man named Bart Hall. And this is supposed to be a close friend of hers. Uh-huh. This is just a year later. So, sidebar. After Bruce dies and she gets all this money, i seen like some of these articles that she was like in Louisiana at these casinos uh, spending all his money mm-hmm. and... She had closed down all his accounts and took all the money out of it. This is even more money than the $450,000 insurance policy. Like, all his accounts and stuff. And I, they, besides him being a lab tech, they don't say anything else about, like, his money. But I assume he had a lot, you know? If, if she's, like, closing down his accounts and everything and spending mm. all his money on her mm. gambling debts. Okay, so like I said, that's just a little sidebar. Once the police find out that she's married to this Bart Hall person... They call him in for an interview. In the interview, he tells them that he just purchased a $100,000 life insurance policy Uh so that if anything happens to him, she'll be taken care of. Oh, my God. Janice. At this point, the police are like, fuck. Like, it's urgent that we get this bitch in jail because she's going to kill again. Right? So now they're like, it was a cold case. Now they are like, we got to do something to get her fucking ass in jail. Right. When they interview Bart, this is on April 4th, 1997. More than a year later, they go back to the forest, because I don't know how to say the name. So this is June 23rd, 1998. They go back to search for this murder weapon because they know what kind of, flat out, they know whose it was. They know what kind it was. They just never found it. Right. So, like I said, they know that it's JC's gun. And they know that this fucking Janice killed Bruce. But they don't have any evidence to prove it. So they go back to the forest to find the gun. And they focus on two areas. Uh, They focus on 
this thing that they call the bog. It's like a marshy area. Yeah. A bog. A bog. <laughs> a bog. So they concentrate on this bog. That's near Janice's campsite, right? And then they focus on this pond that is near JC's campsite. Mm. So these are the two ones that they're focusing on. So they collect samples of dirt from both of these locations, right? So they compare these dirt samples to the clothes that Janice was wearing that day. Oh, because at some point she did go back to change to her change clothes. clothes. They compare it to the clothes she was wearing and they get a match to JC's campsite. Now it is blowing up her whole story because she's saying that she never, in her story, she was never at JC's campsite. Through her whole story, she's over here at their own campsite. She's sending down the game to him. She had to go change her clothes for whatever reason because mud got on them. So she had to go change her clothes. So she's back at the camp earlier than she told Bruce she was going to be there. And so it's just blowing up your whole story because that's not what you were doing. You was over there at his pond, stepping in the pond, stealing his gun. You stole the rifle and all that other shit. Right? Right. And her going back to change her clothes is is key to her pretending like it's an accident. Yeah. Because your alibi was that you went back to change your clothes. You know what I'm saying? And you ran into this mysterious guy out in the woods, <laughs> in the forest, that nobody seen or saw before or after this whole thing. It's just blowing up your whole story. You know? Because you're not where you said you were at. You over here... At his pond, still in his shit. <laughs> they arrest her. After they get the match, and they like, your whole story is blown the fuck up. Uh-huh. So they arrest her on uh, October 23rd at her home. So at this point, she has moved out of Colorado. She's back in Texas. Some uh, city I never heard of and couldn't pronounce. So <laughs> back in Texas. And then she's extradited back to Mesa County. So on February 2nd, 2000, she goes to trial. They, you know, sum up this whole story about how they believe that she killed him to get the insurance money. Uh Uh-huh. You were over here getting the gun. We know you was there getting the gun. That your story is blown up like you don't have an alibi anymore, you know. So they convict her. She's found guilty, life in prison, March 20th, 2000. And she's, that's where she's still at right now. Mesa County uh, State Prison for Women is where she's at. So that's what they think that they, her motive is for this. When the police are talking to JC, it also comes up that um, like a week or so before she was about to get married to Bruce, she went back to him and wanted to get back together. Like, you know, uh-huh. please take me back or whatever. And uh-huh. he has moved on with his life with this younger woman. Right. And then she goes on and proceeds to get married to Bruce. Right. Now, they have been together for three years before they get married. And, you know, she's still in love with him. He always have her heart, blah, blah, blah. And she goes back to try to get with him. He doesn't want to be with her. And then that right there to me, in my own personal opinion, I believe... It wasn't. It didn't have anything to do with the money. It was about setting him up because she used his gun to shoot him. Yeah. And you set up the whole. You go on this camping trip right next to where you know he always camps, and he was married to this man for over twenty five years. So I'm sure you knew when he was going to be camping. You know, like I don't know if it's just a special weekend or anything. It's just my opinion that it seems like to me she was trying to set him up. Uh-huh. Not trying nothing about the money, you know. Then the money just came with it, and whatever she thought she got away with it, but then he didn't go down either, <laughs> you know. So she gets away with it for years or whatever. But I'm, I was just thought it was interesting that they never even, you know. Well, one of her, one of his friends, one of Bruce's friends, did say in a documentary on Snap that they thought he was a perfect scapegoat to take the rap for the murder, but they still was like, Cole Harley, her motive was the money. But I just, I just think he turned her down. First of all, he was cheating on her, then left her for a younger woman, and then she went back to him trying to get back with him, and he turns her down. So I just fully 
think that the motive is wrong. You think that she was uh, jealous. Yeah. And she killed him out of jealousy. Yeah, because why be with somebody for that long? I would think she would marry him sooner than that. Right? Mm. If it was for you to get the money. I think you bringing that up raises a lot of questions because maybe she was in it for the revenge and the money was just a nice little cherry Cherry on on top. top. She was trying to pin it on homeboy though. She's definitely trying to trying to pin it on her on her ex. She's trying to kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. But she fired three bullets. <laughs> exactly. And that's what gives you away. Because this is not an accident. This is not a hunting accident when he has three bullet holes. It's not an accident at this point. And then the rifle was right next to him, and you put the shells right next to him, like What deflected that first bullet? Pure luck she didn't hit him the first time. And they think that, so he had on the vest, it went through the vest, so he's probably freaked the fuck out. He takes off the vest, and he's waving it like, hey, motherfuckers, I'm not a deer. (laughs) You know, I am a human. Yeah. And that's why when they found him, the vest was laying next to him. Because he took it off to wave at them, like, stop shooting at me. You know what I'm saying? And then here comes two <coughs> more shots that actually land. Oh, I'm hit. Oh, it's a good thing it hit my Bible. I always keep it close <laughs> to my heart. <laughs> she thought that the, the one shot was going to do it. Because she's a good shot. There was some other um, lady who was inter- they was interviewing about her. And they, when they were talking about how she's an avid hunt. You know, she gets avid huntsman or whatever. Hunts, huntsman woman. Yeah. <laughs> That she's an avid hunter. Right. Um, that she's a good hit. Like, she's good with her gun. She right. hit her mark. So, I, she wasn't anticipating that first hit not taking his ass out. Right. And I think she fired again. She fired a third time just to seal the deal. Because yeah. she knew she had to kill him. Yeah, because the medical examiner was saying it was three shots. Two hit him and one killed him. Hmm. That so, third one. The third one. The third one killed him. That third one was to seal the deal. Yeah. Just like, I don't know, the whole motive in it is weird to me. It's weird to me. <sighs> she sounds like the type of gal that wants it all. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's about the money. It's about the revenge. It's about I- the thrill of the murder. Yeah. And you see it a lot with female serial killers, uh, the, the Black Widow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think it started off being with the revenge. Mm-hmm. It's fucked up if you was like this man that you just married that you was with for three years before you got married. Mm-hmm. Was the cost of you taking out this other man. But it shows that who she was really in love with or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. My take on the motive anyway. I just thought it was way different. From what they think. Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe it was like revenge because she was with this man for over 25 years. Mm-hmm. And then he cheated on her. He left her for this much younger woman that he was cheating on her with. She goes back and like tries to plead her love or whatever to him before she gets married to this other guy. And he fucking turns her ass down again. You know, ain't like a woman's score is real. <laughs> it is a real thing when a woman is scorned. She basically didn't care about uh, this Bruce guy. He was just a pawn in the whole thing. She only married him to get the whole life insurance thing. And she probably only did that so she could plot her revenge on her ex. I feel like he was um, he was her rebound. But then they end up being together for years. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that she's always was going to be in love with the ex because she was with him for 25 years. And that's something that just what it sounds like to me anyway. It just came out of nowhere. Like she's completely in love and happy with him. And then he's cheated and now he's leaving you for her. You know, I just think it was more to it. Like I, I think that she at some point did love Bruce or, you know, but in the back of her mind always felt like she was still going to get back with JC. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, you know, you break up with somebody, you always sure, be like, I'm going to get sure. back, we're going to get back together no matter what happens. Hmm. You know? And I, I just kind of feel like that. And then when she went to plead her love, like, I'm about to marry somebody else, and he's like, I don't give a fuck. You know? Mm-hmm. That was just kind of like a blow to her, I think. She thought something different than 
what the reality of the situation was. Yeah. I think, like, poor Bruce just, you know... Wrong place, wrong time. Wrong bitch, wrong time. Sure. <laughs> sure. She got her own shit going that she gonna do because her husband cheated on her and shit. Like, I just think, poor Bruce. Poor Bruce. Let that man live his life in his lab. As a lab technician, minding his business, which he may or may have not been testing UAs. Man, he could be alive today running the piss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is my story, the murder of Bruce Dobson. Interesting. A tale of love, a tale of revenge. Tale of Mile High Murder. Mile High Murder. <laughs> so, we gonna do this piece of cake? Oh, yes, the piece of cake. Are we gonna explain what that is? Yeah, here. So, this is the part of the show we call uh, Piece of Cake. So, I recently got a phone call from my mom who lives in Mexico, and she said that uh, she hears the, bark- the dog barking. She uh, goes outside to see, hey, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of neighbors out here. I know pretty much everyone around here, but, you know, why is this dog barking? She never barks unless there's something going on. So uh, she goes up the stairs, looks off the roof, and sees that there's a cow in the field next to where she lives. And um, the cow has a trash can stuck on its head. (laughs) So the cow's freaking out. It's got this trash can stuck on its head. Uh. It's moving around. The poor thing just has no idea where it's going. Can't see... How terrible. And the dog's barking at the cow. Um, (laughs) But what the dog's also barking at is a guy who pulls up in a truck. And little old man goes uh, up to the cow and tries to pull the trash can off its head just to help help the guy out. Yeah. You know, out of the kindness of his heart. Right. And um, the cow's struggling. He's having a really hard time. You know, it's a a rough day. Um, I think we've all kind of had like days like that. You know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's that bad. Yeah, yeah so. your head is stuck in a fucking trash can. Right. <laughs> Anyways, what ends up happening, and this is where things start to turn up for, for the cow. Um, the old man gets the trash can off the cow's head finally. You know, everybody's happy. The cow can breathe again, can see again. The little old man feels good. He helped the cow out. Dog's having a good time because everybody's getting out of there. And my mom just tells me, you know what? It was just a good... A good symbol of humanity and just like, you know, let's not forget about helping out those in need if we can help them. I don't really know what else to say about this piece of cake, but it was nice and sweet. It was short. The cow is having a better day. You know, here's to better days out there. Here is to better days. And if you are having a day where you have a fucking trash can stuck on your Mm. head, let's pray and hope that somebody... Will be there to take that fucking shit off your head. So right. You see, that is like the moral of the story. So I want to talk a little bit more about what piece of cake is. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like we are most of the time when we're talking about some heavy fucking shit. At the end of our show, we want to have a piece of cake, make it light and fluffy and inspiring and something great. That happened to either one of us or something we just seen. Or even like in this case, you know, your mom called right on time and we were like, well, what are we going to do? You know? Yeah. And I we, was like, that's perfect. We didn't, we, we, we kind of uh, didn't really have a story for a piece of cake and it just happened right place, right time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. That was good. No, and that's good stuff. That we plan to do that after every episode we do or, you know, God willing, knocking on wood, that yeah. we were going to be successful in this And uh, lighten up. Lighten it up just a little bit. Lighten it up for the hard shit that we talked about. I am just <laughs> glad that we got this one under our belt. Mm-hmm. And I am like happy and can't wait, excited to listen to it. Mm-hmm. All done and edited up. And thanks for sharing my vision and building on it with me together is great but we have been talking about it for so long so i'm happy that we finally did it absolutely absolutely everyone out there y'all have a good night take care of yourselves bye thank you so much for listening to the spider and the fly a mile high true crime podcast we can be found on social media on instagram at spider and fly podcast we're open to any sort of constructive criticism